I'm Dave Ursillo. Welcome back to Written Spoken. This is my podcast, and this season we have on 10 voices uh, of writers and professionals, people from different walks of life who are all sharing not only an excerpt, but an, a live author reading with us from one of their books. They're following up with an interview and an intimate conversation, not only about their book itself, but its contents, their personal story, their professional background, their expertise, and what mission they're on in the world. I hope you're enjoying these conversations. And if you are, I'd love to hear from you. Just leave us a five-star rating, ideally, if you agree. Uh, but at the very least, leave a review. And in the review, tell me who you'd like to hear uh, interviewed next on the podcast. This is a unofficial call-out for new voices of authors, writers, creatives, professionals, uh, this season, I have admittedly leaned very heavily on my own network of peers and colleagues and friends from the last 11 years of working for myself as a writer and author and coach uh, and my network of uh, fellow bloggers turned X, Y, and Z. So I'll, I have personal relationships to everyone on the show this season, but I really want to be branching out in future seasons and talking to people who I don't know. And from uh, all sorts of walks of life and, and points of view, that's the goal of Written Spoken, a podcast in which the written word comes to life as the spoken word through the voices of the writers who wrote them. So please leave a, a review for us. Let me know at least the name of one author who you'd love to hear, and I'll do what I can to connect with them. Today's episode features Paul Jarvis. Paul is a designer, a podcaster, and an author. He runs a company of one, and that's the name of his book, Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business. Paul has a voice that I really resonate with and appreciate. Um, he is oftentimes examining trends in culture, trends in small business, uh, especially for freelancers or online-based businesses. So if you are a creative, a freelancer, if you aspire to work for yourself, or you're uh, a more traditional entrepreneur, maybe you're in the startup world, this will be a great podcast for you to listen to a voice with an unconventional perspective about how to get into the original intention and to reside within the original intention of why you started to work for yourself. According to Paul, that reason is freedom. And how do you stay aligned to freedom as you seek growth? I hope you enjoy our conversation. Paul, take it away. It's assumed that hard work and smart thinking always result in business growth. But the opposite is often true. Not all growth is beneficial, and some growth can actually reduce your resilience and your autonomy. Just as I learned these skills and self-sufficiency that were far outside my realm of knowledge, companies of one can do the same. Indeed, they'll need to in order to stand out and thrive. In truth, embracing growth appears to be the easier route more often than not, since it's easier to throw more at any problem that might pop up. Want more customers? Well, hire more employees. Need more revenue? Spend more. Fielding more support requests? We'll build a bigger support team. But scaling up might not be the best or the smartest solution to the basic problem. As a means to generating higher profits, what if you acquired more customers simply by creating more efficiency so you don't have to hire more people? What if you generated more revenue by finding a way to spend less, again, for higher profits? What if you responded to growth in support requests by finding a better way to teach your customers how to use what you sell so they didn't have as many questions to ask as often? 
What if you didn't have to work more hours to finish a project, but just more efficiently so you could enjoy more of your life away from work? Growth in the typical business sense isn't always a smart strategy if it's followed blindly. You just heard the voice of Paul Jarvis, today's guest author on Written Spoken. Paul is a designer, podcaster, and author. He describes himself as someone who makes simple and humane products. In the past, Paul has worked with professional athletes like Steve Nash and Shaquille O'Neal, corporate giants like Microsoft and Mercedes-Benz, and entrepreneurs with online empires like Danielle Laporte and Marie Forleo. His words and ideas have been featured in Wired, Fast Company, Vice, USA Today, Quartz, and more. His book, Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business, explores what happens when we question growth in business. It's been translated into over 18 languages, and you can find Paul on his personal blog, which is pjrvs.com. Paul, welcome to Written Spoken, and thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. No problem. You could have listed your name in there because I did your website. As well. Oh, yeah, that's I, it, it is true. Yeah. Full disclosure, Paul did design my website. And uh, we've, we've been, uh, I'd say we've been like uh, online buddies ever since we actually shared coffee together uh, uh, out in Victoria, probably in 2013. Teen, maybe Paul and I remember yeah. you saying that was like a really big deal for you because you were like I don't meet people that I know online <laughs> I was like I'm flattered yeah <laughs> well speaking of um Victoria Island uh, or I should say Vancouver Island where Victoria is located Paul I know it was about 10 years ago that you and your wife made a big change this is a story that you tell in the book you began to really scale down your lives you transitioned out of the tech world and some really demanding work um, to continue really demanding work, but of a different sort. You moved to a town of, I think, like 2,000 people. And what I'm curious about in the scope of the book that we're talking about, Company of One, how did that story kind of kick off what this book has become for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of it was, um, I guess, two things. The first was that... I guess I realized how little I needed to be happy. Like when we moved to um, to Fino from Van, we didn't bring any of our furniture because we were selling our condo. <laughs> and the, the realtor was like, it looks really good staged. Apparently we have good taste in furniture or something. <laughs> nice. And so we, so we brought our camping gear and we, we used that for probably six to nine months. And that was all we had in the in the house, other than I think mm-hmm. I bought a desk for five bucks on Craigslist, um, so I could have a like an a quote unquote office space. Right. But we, yeah, we quickly realized that we didn't really need it. That was probably one of the happiest times in our lives. Was just to wake up, go to yoga, go for a surf, uh, get a bit of work done, and, and and cook some good food. And that was really all, um, there is, there's that much to do, uh, when you live in a tiny town like that in the middle of nowhere. So that was uh, a huge part of kind of developing and, and understanding that mindset. And the second part was when you turn off all of the noise and all of the stimulus and, and, and all of the things that distract you, you're basically left with your own thoughts. And that is a scary thing, my friend, <laughs> to, to have to deal with and work through and understand. But I think ultimately it's beneficial because I could start to see 
okay, what am I, what am I doing here with my work? What do I really want? Are the goals that I have goals that I actually care about and, and have some purpose and meaning for me, or are they just societal goals or are they just things that I'm trying to emulate what somebody else has achieved? And so in, in doing that and removing all of the noise and the, the flash, there was a billboard outside of our, um, on the building beside ours, we lived right downtown that was a video billboard and we had to get blackout blinds. We had to get, so there was all, and we had to get um, an air purifier to act as white noise. So just all of these levels of trying to remove distraction when we lived in the city disappeared when we moved to the woods on an Island on the coast. And so by doing that, it was just even like the, the friend circle that we had disappeared because we moved to somewhere we didn't know that many people. So it was just basically starting from scratch um, and, and rebuilding kind of how I thought about um, a lot of things in the world and in my life. And, and that was certainly a, a huge part of it was the, was the business angle. Yeah. And, and you said in the excerpt that you read for us, Paul, from your book, uh, quote, it's assumed that hard work and smart thinking always result in business growth, but the opposite is often true. Not all growth is beneficial and some growth can actually reduce your resilience and your autonomy, unquote. And what I hear you describing in the trajectory of your own story with, you know, you and your wife leaving that video billboard behind, <laughs> thank goodness for that. And um, kind of like choosing a different lifestyle, it seems like you were not just following an idea around like minimalism or or simplicity necessarily, you're following what to you seems to be, seem to define um, the life that you wanted to live. In, in other words, like freedom and autonomy. Uh, why is it that in your estimation, we tend to think that more and like more, 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 more leads to like, will eventually lead to happiness. And why doesn't it in your opinion? Yeah, it's funny because minimalism wasn't a thing back then or simplicity. Right. Mary Kondo hadn't sparked joy in anybody in the West at that point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think a, a lot of it comes down to um, we emulate what we see. So if all we see in the media for business um, is things like people get talked about if they receive funding or if they grow by 300%. And if a lot of what we see as far as, well, this is, this is what success looks like. And it's one monochromatic example of that. Mm -hmm. And that is what we think of as, okay, if I want to be a quote unquote successful entrepreneur, then this is the path. There's one path. And this is it. And I think for a lot of us, we don't, I, for myself especially, or even personally, I don't really resonate with that. I don't want to have a staff. I don't want to have to manage other people, Dave. I think some people are put on this planet to, to be amazing managers, and I am not one of those people. <laughs> so I feel like if I grew and I, I started to hire more people, then I would basically be promoting myself out of a job I like into a job that I don't. And, and how is that a success? Right? So yeah, right. I think looking at and examining, well, maybe my version of success doesn't look like what is currently out there. Or maybe my version of success is absolutely personal to myself. I think those are more important questions to be asking ourselves. And how can I be the next 
um, like Zucker, although nobody wants to be Zuckerberg right now, or the next Oprah, or the next the next business, the next Elon Musk, the next business leader who has done things a certain way. Maybe that resonates. Maybe that is exactly what you want, and and that's absolutely fine. And nowhere in the book or in my in my in my way of reasoning is saying that growth is bad because it's not. I just think we need to question it before we proceed. And that's kind of what I came to with that. Yeah. And it sounds, Paul, like asking those clarifying questions are a natural result. Like the opportunity to ask those questions comes of like when you are able to sit a little bit more quietly with your thoughts, which you said a moment ago is something that's truly scary. And you actually (laughs) cite some evidence in the book that, um, that, you know, research has been done to show how, how people in a, in a, study setting might prefer to get a small electrical shock rather than just like sit in the quiet with their own thoughts, which is an extreme example. But I think when you, when you do sit and try to answer some questions around like, what, what is it that I really do want with my life? And what do I really want to achieve with business? Is it just about growth for the sake of growth? Like a lot of people might assume is the only story that exists. This is like what the premise of the book is. Um, When you actually can sit with your thoughts, it sounds like time to yourself, space to yourself and, and, and sieving through some of the questions to get some, some nuggets of clarity are actually what help uh, a business owner, whether it's a, a freelancer or an entrepreneur really get more confident in what they're working towards what they want to work towards to begin with, rather than just thinking I'm going to work hard and harder and harder and harder and eventually get to some place where I'm happy. It doesn't seem like a really, that doesn't really seem like it's a pathway that works. And it seems like for you and your story, it wasn't one that was exactly panning out in the true sense of happiness. It seems like there was something that was uh, you knew to be lacking or overly complicated in, in contrast to what your values were, which you, what you and your wife were looking for from the life that you wanted to create together. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes down to, we see opportunities as just good. <laughs> and I think a lot right. of times opportunity and opportunities certainly can be, but I think a lot of times there are uh, maintenance costs or obligation debts that come from saying yes to things um, relating to growth or relating to anything. Right. So I think if we question that um, and I, a lot of people um, I struggled with this in the book because it is a lot of, well, let's apply this philosophical thinking to like economic models. Right. But I think that it is important because I think that if we work for ourselves, it's not like that's the easiest road, right? Like it's not like entrepreneurship is the easy path. It's not. Um, and if somebody tells you differently, they're trying to sell you a course or something, I guess. Um, but I think that the, the purpose of doing that is to get, um, like we talked about earlier, to get more freedom, to get more autonomy, to be able to figure out um, what these things mean. I mean, I tweeted yesterday that I think one of the main reasons that I work for myself is that I can generate, ing- I can I can put my money where my heart is. And I think that that's important, not just in these current times where everything is, is, is pretty awful, but just in terms of like everything that who, who are the type of people that I want to um, hire or bring in because company of one doesn't just mean one person. It's not a literal book title, just like Tim Ferriss's four hour work week doesn't mean you work four hours a week. It's, right. it's more of a statement for questioning what is enough. Um, so being able to work for yourself isn't just about getting this specific type of success. 
it's about being able to be be in control of the path that you take because there are many paths or infinite paths that's what sounds like is also a value to someone who can pick up your book paul who may not necessarily consider themselves to be um an entrepreneur or or even self-employed right i know a lot of your audience of over 35,000 subscribers to your to your sunday dispatches newsletter are typically like creatives they're self-employed entrepreneurial small business owners but it but what we're what we're kind of like fixating on in this conversation so far tells me that people who maybe aren't um of like a business mindset can still get a lot from the book based on kind of questioning like consumer culture and spent like the value of spending time with yourself and, and analyzing these philosophical questions, which aren't just thought exercises, but how, like you said, they're, they're about how do they apply to, to the life that you're living and what, you know, freedom or freedom you're looking for or goals you have. Have you, have you received um, feedback from people who have said, you know, have expressed out loud that they're not necessarily business owners or entrepreneurs, but they've found a lot of value in company of one. Has it changed their, their thinking? Um, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think the majority of people who read the book are, um, identify as freelancers or entrepreneurs or small business owners and that sort of thing. So the predominantly that's the the group, but there are definitely some people, especially on my mailing list who, I guess I talk about kind of similar things on that list. And there are people who don't identify in that regard and don't do that type of work, but still feel that questioning how much is enough is a valuable exercise in terms, even just in terms of how do I want to be spending my days and what would make me the, what would make me the most content with my days based on decisions that I make. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think, I think there is, it is a, it is a broader conversation there. Um, It is just told through the lens of (laughs) business owners. Right. So Paul, what was your, what was the book writing experience like for you? That's something that I, I oftentimes like to ask on this podcast. Cause I'm always so curious about the creative journey to, to create a book. Yours has been translated into over 18 different languages, which is awesome. How did the experience of writing your book come to be other than how we've already talked about it, right? Which is like, it was a byproduct of the work you've been doing some changes in your life, um, big and small and, and being, what I would call a thought leader in in the space of helping small business owners and and online entrepreneurs at large. What was the actual experience of writing your book like for you? Did you enjoy it? Was it awful? Um, Somewhere in between? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All of the above. Simple answer is yes. So, I mean, and this, I guess, sounds kind of controversial, but I, I, I don't mean it to be. I write because I make money writing. I don't know. I honestly, I don't know if I would be an author if I didn't get, if, if it was my job, if I didn't get paid to do it, it's, mm-hmm. it's economics for me um, for writing. And I mean, I guess to some degree it's that, but I guess I would question my own line of thinking in that there are other things that I could do for money, but writing is what I chose um, or the majority of the work that I, that I do, even with courses and the software that I sell, most of it comes down to my day spent writing. <laughs> yeah. So the, the process was, the process was um, that I'd, I'd pub- self-published like four or five books before that, or even I think it's, yeah, I think it's four or five books before that. And I had always poo-pooed on traditional publishing because I was always of the mindset that if this is my creative work, I want full control. 
And so I started, and there's a theme here. Everything I think is true, I need to question and be like, is it really? Does it still hold? So I figured instead of um, instead of just being negative about traditional publishing, I would do it. And then if I still wanted to be negative, I would have good fodder for it. Mm-hmm. Right. So I... I I wrote to my mailing list, I think it was January of 2017 or 2018, I'm bad with dates, saying that I I wanted to work on a new book. I wanted to pursue traditional publishing. Does anybody in my audience know any agents? Because I figured, I don't know anything about traditional publishing. Agents do. Let's get one of those people. Um, So I talked to a few agents and one really resonated with the message. Um, she was really, a, we, it was easy for us to communicate ideas back and forth in rapid fire, which is kind of how I like to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started working with her and we started um, kind of massaging the, and, and really the idea came from one, it was an article that I wrote from a mailing list and I've published a weekly newsletter for, I guess, about eight years now. And so I see trends in what my audience care about and don't care about. And I base all my writing on that. I'm a, I, I basically, I'm a, I'm a sellout because I write about things that my audience cares about and I make and sell things that my audience cares about. Um, and so I had an article where I usually get between, I guess, about 150, 200 replies to three or 400 replies to my newsletter each week. And I'd written an article on why I don't care about growth. And I got... I don't know, this is a while ago, probably 1,200, 1,400 replies. Like it was just wow. exponentially larger than anything I had ever written ever. And I was like, okay, this, this, I can, this is something that I like writing about. This is something I know a great deal about. I can monetize this. And that was like, honestly, the, the conversation I had in my head. So when I was talking to agents, I kind of presented them with that data because an agent's job is to see if your idea is sellable to a publisher. And that's, the the long and short of it is can I sell this idea to a publisher who will then give the author money and then they get a percentage of it for doing the job that they do. And so she figured, yeah, this is, this is an idea that can sell. Let's massage it in this way. Let's write a book proposal, which is like writing a mini book because you're basically writing the book without writing the book. Then we sold it to a publisher and I just basically took all of the things that I'd been writing about for years that had been popular around that topic and kind of formulated how to put them into chapters. And then I treat like, I treat it's like the most boring thing ever, but I treated it like a job. I sat down, I woke up every day, same time, started writing at the same time, whether I wanted to write or not. And I banged it out and I, I banged out a first draft, which was garbage, but that's the point of a first draft, probably two or three months. And I went to the publisher, we started working on edits and all of that. So it just, it became my daily, it became my nine to five job for uh, a couple months while, while I kind of got it done. Yeah. I think the honesty that you share about the writing process and journey is also really refreshing because I think a lot of time, the writers with whom I work, I mean, I'm very emotionally attached to writing as like a practice as an outlet, but um, I think sometimes the, the shadow of that appreciation for writing is that you can kind of put it on a pedestal and sometimes having a little bit more of a pragmatic or even like, uh, yeah, just purely, just purely practical 
relationship to it as a, as an outlet or a means to an end can be helpful when you have to kind of, you know, sit down and do the work like you did for writing this book, Paul. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talked about your, your, your newsletter, the Sunday dispatches, um, how you use that to kind of like how you use it still to test ideas and how that's, springboarded uh, company of one. Before you were writing, though, uh, you were obviously doing a lot of web design. And that was, I think, how you really broke into working online. And, and, and I think you've been working online for yourself now for 20 years or so. Is that right? How many years has it been? Yeah, 21 in February. That's awesome. Yeah, so yeah. obviously, you've been a part of the web. And like I said, now I, I consider you to be a, a thought leader in how you not only talk about business, but you talk about creativity and the use of the internet and other factors that have been as the internet has grown in popularity, more of like social issues and more um, like bigger issues than just quote unquote being on the internet. What's one of the most pronounced changes you've seen in the online world in the last, you know, 21 years of being so active on it? Yeah. I mean, I've kind of seen it evolve from a very grassroots indie decentralized thing to an absolutely centralized between a handful of big tech companies. Mm. Um, But now I'm a little hopeful here because I think that's not what that's not, that's not an image of the internet that I resonate with is basically all the platforms are owned by a couple rich white dudes and their tech companies. Like that doesn't really, that doesn't feel like a good internet for me. Um, and so I, I've cared a lot about uh, digital privacy and, and fundamental rights that citizens of the internet should have. And in the last few years, obviously I have a business that does that with privacy focused um, stuff. But in the last few years, I've kind of seen this go from, um, a fringe tinfoil hat topic to uh, more mainstream with things like Cambridge Analytica and Zuckerberg having to testify in front of Congress and that. So I'm hopeful that more and more people, and, and it's good to see more and more people are kind of caring about, okay, what is the impact that using the internet or using specific websites and having them track and follow me around and, and use this data, like what is the impact of that? on my life and if these companies aren't charging me money for the services that they offer and they're making billions of dollars a quarter then how are they making money like let's follow the money here how are they making money and if i don't if i can't come to terms with how they're making money off of the data then maybe that's a business that even though it's free for me to use is a business that i don't that i no longer wish to support and so that's been really that's been really good for me to see in the last few years because I talked about digital started talking about digital privacy probably four or five years ago and it didn't go well nobody cared and so I stopped writing about it because I follow basically the trend of what my readers care about and then I figured oh, I'm just going to start bringing it up again and test the waters because it's still something I care about and then yeah. when I did it seemed like that was the right time and then yeah I ended up building a product out of it so. Yeah, that product is called Fathom, right? It's um, You describe it on your website. You're the co-founder of Fathom. It's a, a simple privacy-focused website analytics tool. Essentially, it's an answer to Google Analytics, which many website owners, such as myself, sell their soul, so to speak, to Google to get these free tools to learn more about their visitors and to be able to you know, ideally monetize or put advertisements on their website. What a lot of people don't realize is that the data collection all goes to Google. So you're able to see 
information about your visitors on your website, but Google's taking all of the information from every website that uses it. And your, your product fathom is, is an attempt to change that narrative. If not to compete with Google, that might be a tall task (laughs) to offer an, offer a product that actually helps people to, you know, have some like smart data about their visitors without it being um, a part of the, the, the privacy problem in, in the modern world. Yeah, I mean, if we get 1% of market share versus Google Analytics, I'd be happy. Like, that would be a big company for me. (laughs) Because I think 70% of the internet uses Google Analytics. So um, if if somebody chooses to use a privacy-focused product like Fathom, then they're basically making their website a black hole where Google and no big tech can see in as far as uh, website analytics go. Mm And so that to me, I think a lot of time this comes back to the, the business growth and, and all of that is I don't want to, I don't care about being a market leader in this space. Like it doesn't, I don't care about the competition in this space, yeah. right? Like if there's enough people who are using our product who find value and paying for something, so they're not then the product. And then that's good. Like I have a great company with my co-founder Jack uh, because of it. And that's basically my full-time job right now yeah. is running that. And I, I'm happy about that. Yeah. One thing you wrote about in the Sunday Dispatches newsletter not long ago, Paul, because I'm a, it's your newsletter is one of the few that I have stayed subscribed to over the years because I really enjoy what you write about. Um, you kind of called people's, called some people out, not by name, but you called, I guess it was not calling people out, but calling an idea out. And the idea was that there's a difference between online privacy and having something to hide. And I remember you saying in that newsletter, Sometimes when you talk about online privacy, people's response is, I don't care about privacy. I have nothing to hide. What is the difference between protecting somebody's data in the conversation that we're having here, which is like what you're saying is now a big driver of your full-time work and like this story, this narrative around like, well, I have nothing to hide. Um, where, where's like the, the mis, the mis- like the illogic of that argument? Yeah, I think, well, the first thing is if you feel you have nothing to hide, email me your credit card number. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the, 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 easiest, the easiest way to kind of speak to that. But, but I also think that it comes down to, well, how would you like people to use, the, use personal information and interests about yourself? Would you like them to discriminate against you because of it? Would you like them to discriminate against you because they know that you are female or because you are between certain age range or because you're of a certain race, right? Like I think that feeling like we have nothing to hide is a little privileged because a a lot of us, one, live in a world or not a world, but a country where there isn't prosecution or there isn't a lot of prosecution um, for specific things. Whereas in other countries, if they find out that you're gay, then you can be prosecuted or you can go to jail. Or if you're taught, if you have a dissenting view to a political party, then you can be rounded up. And so I think a lot of times having privacy doesn't mean that you're doing, um, nefarious or 'er ne'er-do-well things. I think a lot of times privacy just means that you have a space to, explore what you believe and explore what you think and question those things. And if we don't have places like that, if big brother is watching us 24 seven, then that impacts our behavior and our mental models. And so I think it, it, it's more than just, well, I'm not doing anything illegal. Therefore 
everybody can know everything about me. It's more, well, do, is it, is it safe that everybody knows everything about me? And there's just that, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty nuanced kind of topic, but I think a lot of it comes down to just like these, these big tech companies don't have our best interests in mind. They have their shareholders in mind. Right. So however they can monetize things the better. And then the third, I guess, the third spoke in this wheel is that any data that exists is going to have a breach at some point. Time and time again, if you look up Wikipedia data breaches, it lists just the biggest ones and it's just pages and pages of information. Right. So anything that is known about us on the internet has the potential to leak and is probably going to leak at some point. So the less that's out there, the the better and the safer we all are. Yeah. And so, Paul, we're, we're recording this interview uh, in June of 2020. Obviously, you, you mentioned a bit ago there's been a lot going on. And um, in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, that actually, the, the pandemic kind of sparked a, a new project for you in partnership with MailChimp, a company that's um, an email marketer that's turned into like a, a pretty renowned uh, client relationship management software giant, I would say. Uh, you've teamed up with them before. And in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, you've teamed up with MailChimp and started a, a podcast called Call Paul. Could you tell me a little bit about the concept for the show? And other than it being a result of the pandemic, how it came to be? What were some of the drivers between you getting into the weeds of podcasting again and um, having conversations with business owners all over the world? Yeah, so it wasn't that wasn't the plan. Oh, really? All Paul was going to be a very different show where small business owners would call in like a, a mock call-in show because it wasn't live. It, it's produced. Um, they would call in, we would talk about an issue they were having with their business. Then I would call a friend who's an expert at a various thing that they were asking about and, and help them solve the problem. And then we started and we'd planned all this. We had done some, um, I guess, what do they call pilot episodes mm -hmm. um, in, I guess, October, November. And it was, it was testing really well. And so we were going to start recording in March and then, the week that we started recording was the week the pandemic really hit full force in the West. And it felt like we were just avoiding this elephant in the room and the elephant kept getting bigger and bigger. And we were kind of smushed into a corner in the room. So we were just like, oh, screw it. <laughs> we're just going to talk about this. Yeah. And so the show, I, I'm grateful for um, the people on MailChimp's end to let myself and the the producers of the show kind of run with uh, the idea we had off the cuff of, okay, this show is a hundred percent still about small business. That's my wheelhouse. Like that, that's what I know. And that's what I've, what I've thought about for 20 years, but now the lens that we're telling these stories is through how small businesses are dealing with um, the fallout and, and hopefully seeing some light at the end of the tunnel for, um, the economy basically shuttering and stopping for a lot of businesses. I mean, the, the, the ninth episode of the season is uh, I'm talking to a director, a marathon director, Michelle Lasala about marathons and 
it's hard to have, uh, and she's worked on like the LA and the Boston and the New York marathon. It's hard to have 40,000 people in one space breathing heavily and in close proximity. Like that just feels so alien at the moment. And so that, 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 that became the conversation, um, for, for the show. And I'm glad I did. I'm actually more interested, um, in, in what we're doing now because it feels so relevant and it feels like it can still have legs after all of the, after we get through all this, after there's finally hopefully a vaccine and whatnot, then we can still learn from the resilience of these business owners who were dealing with things because you never know in business, man. Like it's, you can kind of make plans and have spreadsheets and, and and all of that but it's just until it actually has to get put into practice it's just a hypothesis so in, in going through something that nobody could have ever predicted um, or not many people or at least not small business owners it's not something that we have had to think about in the past having to deal with this has just shown me personally so much resilience in in the entrepreneur world and 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 in business owners who have just kind of figured out how to roll with the punches and and make things work and basically do the right thing my favorite quote from the show um was somebody who said i think it was matt from kin or matt or dan from kinship which could remember this was like so many episodes ago now But he said that he would rather go out of business doing the right thing than stay in business doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this, this is basically small. Like you summed up how every small business owner I've ever talked to feels about business and the business existing in a, in a greater community and greater society. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense that there's, there's legs to the show being longer than just revolving around COVID-19, even though I think, Unfortunately, a lot of businesses are going to be continually affected by the pandemic for for many months, if not directly, then indirectly. But it sounds like the larger, I mean, it sounds like a great way to kick off a show about business owners trying to do the right thing and stay and learn how to be resilient, innovate on the fly. And like you said, it's all just like, you know, in your book and company of one, you say that ideas are actually worthless, even though we tend to think of ideas as being worth actual dollars it's not until we actually do something with them until we we test the hypothesis and once you as soon as you start testing it it's everything changes on the fly and it sounds like call paul is kind of uh, showcasing that with all these different business owners and what they're navigating now yeah i mean if i can shine a light on on small business owners who are doing awesome things like i'm i'm there for that all all day every day so it's it's to totally self-serving to be able to talk to such amazing people, but also then share those conversations. Um, yeah. With a bit, with a bigger audience. Yeah. All right, Paul. Well, I thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us on written spoken. I want to be um, courteous of your time, but I do have one last question and I think I saved it. It's my, it's my hardest hitting Barbara Walters, like bring <laughs> it on the guest question. So I hope you're ready for it. Sure. Uh, I know you have a pretty special relationship to a small and some would say unconventional domesticated pet. Where did your love of rats come from? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think Barbara Walters asked that of all of her guests. Uh, yeah, pretty much. So, um, I had, it, it's funny because I was, I was sick as a, as a kid and my mom at, like at uh doctor specialist appointments, 
was like, well, we want to get a pet because Paul can't leave the house very much. So what, like, what can we get? Cause he's allergic to dogs and cats. Cause I, I am, even though I love uh, those floofs, I'm very allergic. So the doctor, and I don't know how the doctor knew this or why this was the first thing that popped into this doctor's mind was, well, ha- have you thought about a pet rat? Because they are have very different dander than dogs and cats. A lot of people um, are not allergic to them. And they're very social. They're very friendly. They bond with their human family companions. Um, and they can be amazing pets. So I had a, I had a few um, when I was a kid. I was probably like 9 or 10 uh, before I was even a teenager. And then, and then I didn't have any, and then I didn't have any for many, many years. And then probably when I was in my mid, late thirties, probably, um, I was just looking, I was scrolling through Instagram with my wife. And this is when we lived in, in Tofino. So that was one of the things we were doing because <laughs> there wasn't much else to do, um, when, when the waves, when there weren't any waves, um, to surf on. Uh, I was looking through and I started seeing pictures of other people with pet rats because there's a pretty big um, community of people who like pet rats. And we both started looking at them and then looking at them more and looking at them more. And then we saw somebody um, needed um, somebody else to adopt some some pet rats that they had. And so we adopted to Ari and Ona. And then, yeah, we just fell in love. And I think we we rescued probably nine over, over the last, like, a bunch of years they don't live very long though which is why i don't have any right now i don't think my heart can't really handle losing more um at the moment but they only yeah they don't live super long so yeah that just kind of yeah it just kind of turned into uh like those are those are the pets that we like that um local shelters always seem to have um pet rats that were abandoned or just or, or left there or that people didn't want anymore and so, yeah, we would just keep going it. We'd always go in and look at them or we would go in to foster them. And then we were the worst at that because we would always take them all and bring them home and not give them back. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like uh, it's, it's a relatable situation when you just, you know, you're just trying to, you're just scrolling through Instagram and then you ultimately you, you take on a bunch of new pets. I definitely um, can, and I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling. And we can actually see anybody who visits your website um, can see one of your pet rats kind of memorialized on the website as your as your logo. And that if they're wondering, then that's the story behind it. Yeah, that's been my yeah, that's been my logo for a while. I also think that they're they're just misunderstood. People don't really get rats and they're the underdog and I always root for the underdog and I, there's just so many things that kind of uh, align really nicely with little rattos and myself so yeah it just it just ended up being really good and some of my most popular writing has been around rats and business so <laughs> maybe that's the next book Paul <laughs> All right, Paul, thank you so much again for for joining us, for sharing your story, for sharing Company of One with us. And we'll look forward to catching up with you uh, maybe when the next book comes around. Yeah, thank you very much. It It was great to chat today. I'm Dave Rosillo, and this is Written Spoken. Bye for now.